What is great to be with all of you here this morning. It's always good to worship together on Sunday mornings. I look forward to this time. It's especially good today, though. I mean, it was beautiful outside, which I think is good and appropriate as we're talking about this good life and giving focus to God's goodness, God's truth, and God's beauty. So it's great as we come together today. We're actually going to be wrapping up this series today and jumping into a journey or the journey with Christ in our Lenten season I'm glad on this final Sunday of sharing on this good life how beautiful it is outside, praying that God's beauty will be shining inside with us here this morning. And I want to take just a moment and also say thanks to Pastor Janet for sharing with us last week and just reminding us of an element of the good life that I think we often forget about, that element of what does it mean to play with God, to uh, have that curiosity-driven exploration that she was talking about. I think that is really, really important, and yet it's something that we oftentimes don't think a whole lot about. So I am super grateful to her for her willingness to do that. We began this year off focusing on the good life because we want to start the year that way, but our hope is to continue in the good life through the rest of this year and really beyond. So even though we won't focus on this particular sermon series, we want it to be a foundation that we're building our life off of, not only for this year, but really in the days, months, years to come. Keeping that in mind, you might remember the definition we've been using of a good life, and I just want to be really clear on that for us here this morning. Just as a reminder, again, it should be consistent with what we've been talking about, that the good life is found when we embrace our role in the story of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that together we can experience all the beauty, all the truth, and all the goodness that there is to be found in this Trinitarian God. There's a whole lot in there, but part of what we want to remind ourselves of and invite ourselves into is this experiencing of beauty and truth and goodness. And I share that with us this morning because on the surface, that should be self-evident, but the reality is we often forget how good God is. For example, we wouldn't have even know what goodness is or what beauty is or what truth is apart from God. God is the one who gives those us those things to enjoy. And I bring that up because a lot of times I think we reduce God to a list of rules, a a list of moral obligations, and there's elements of truth in that, but that's, that's so that's so small of what God really is. If there's anything good in your life, if there's anything beautiful, if there's anything true that you've discovered, it's because it's a gift from God. So if you love music and the beauty and goodness of music, that, that's a gift that God has ultimately given us. If you love athletics and the beauty and the goodness that come when you're watching that, ultimately that's a result of the gift of God being given to us. And so what does it mean to dive fully into that goodness and that beauty and that truth? The reality is, for many of us, many times in the church, we accept or we live into what I would call as a shrunken version of the gospel. And so we reduce God down to this list of statements or quick uh, questions or quick transactions. And so we say or do things, even if we don't mean to do it, we sort of end up conveying the idea that our whole purpose is to get to heaven someday. And that's the best we can hope for right now. Or our whole purpose is avoid hell, as if that's the whole purpose of our being. And and I understand why those ideas are conveyed, but there's so much more to it than that. And so what do we want to do in this series? And as we're wrapping it up, we want to dive more deeply into there's so much more to God's good life than just those things. For example, when we talk about the idea of salvation and spending all of eternity with God and experiencing heaven on earth now with God in a form of salvation, there's this beautiful, wonderful, holy, majestic thing, and yet we often reduce it to one question like, have you accepted Jesus yet? 
Or when it comes to the idea of sin and brokenness in our lives, that's a really big deal because sin breaks us away, separates us from God's love and goodness and majesty and holiness and beauty, and yet we reduce that down to things like, have you repented of your sins yet? Or even when it comes to Scripture, God's holy, magnificent Word, even that we've analyzed and broken down into chapter and verse. And don't get me wrong, we need chapter and verse at times. It helps us give quick addresses to where God's Word is at different times. But if we're not careful in all of the chaptering and all of the versing, we can break it down and lose sight of the life part of God's good words of life. And again, when I share all that this morning, please don't misunderstand me. Salvation and, and finding language for it and living into it is so crucial. And we want Christ accepted into our life and we want to live into the life of Christ, but it's more than just one question. And sin and brokenness, it's a really big deal and we don't want to live into it and we want to avoid it whenever and however we can, but to understand it's more than just the avoidance of hell. We recognize there's this breaking away, this separation from God if we're living into sin. So we want to do everything we can to say, God, I'm sorry for pushing you away. God, I am sorry for living into things that tear me away from you. It's so much more than just one question about sin and repentance. And I hope that we hear that, that that's the spirit that I'm offering it to, us, to the, us to hear this morning. It's, it's certainly, it's just more than these statements that we often reduce it to. And so one of the ways I like to think about this is this. If we're not careful, we can reduce Christianity to a series of statements and moral obligations rather than participation in the most magnificent, holy, wonderful, exciting, grace-filled, adventurous life that there is. Because the best life to be found is life with Christ, experiencing Christ, living into the joy and beauty and goodness of Christ. And I don't ever want us to forget that as God's people. The opportunity that I've had uh, the last couple of years to study uh, with a guy named Len Sweet, and some of you know him, I've referenced him a few times, and Daniel and I have had a chance to study with him and really been excited for that and all that he has shared with us. He lifts up an example to me that's really helpful when we're talking about this idea of living into the good life. And he says, imagine for just a moment that you want to study a bird. And there's really two ways that you can study a bird. And the way that most of us choose to study the bird is this. We take that bird and essentially put it under a microscope as best as we can to analyze it, to study it, to understand every single part of it. And so we do that and we might learn the eye color of the bird and the, the feathering of the bird and all of these things. But in all of our analyzation, we take this bird and we just sort of hold it there and we keep analyzing and dissecting and dissecting and dissecting to learn more information about the bird to the point that if we're not careful, there will come a day when in all of our dissection, for example, if we literally want to know how far is the heart from the lungs in that bird, the only way you can find that out is what? Crack open the bird and measure, look how far the lungs are from the heart. Now we might gain that information, but in all of our analyzation, what have we done to the bird? We've killed it. There's no more life there to be found. All of our analyzation led to death. Versus, says Len, what would it look like to watch and study this bird in its natural habitat? to notice its flight patterns, to notice what scares it, to notice what it's excited about, to notice what it eats, to learn to live in its own rhythms. What would that look like and learn to experience life with the bird in that way? You're still learning about the bird, but now instead of it killing off the bird, what are you doing? You're experiencing the bird and life to a much fuller degree. 
There's even a sense of adventure, and maybe you'll learn things you didn't know, and maybe that bird surprised you and did things you weren't anticipating. There's a sense of excitement and joining in life and whatever that bird is doing. What would it look like to understand life that way about and with the bird? I would suggest to many of us, we've done a very similar thing in the life of the church when it comes to God. In all of our analyzation, we tend to analyze God to the point that we squeeze the life of Christ out. And church, I don't want to, I I don't get excited about a God who is portrayed as dead or a series of statements or a series of moral obligations. I don't get excited about that. Why would we expect other people to get excited about that? We see this even in seminaries. Seminaries are a great and good and wonderful thing, and they can offer many helpful tools to us. But if we're not careful, if we do too much historical criticism, if we focus too much on hermeneutical focus, if we focus too much on homiletical technique, if we do too too much systematic theology, we analyze, analyze, analyze until there's no more life in Jesus to be found. And again, we do the same thing in our lives. We analyze Jesus and we try to get all just the right language, and there might be good reason for that, but if we're not careful, we analyze Jesus literally to death. I don't get excited about that. So how do we reclaim the good life in Jesus Christ? How do we reclaim the beauty and the adventure and all that there is to experience? Even when it comes to the words of life found in Scripture, it's fascinating what we do. They are words of life given to us only in more recent times have things like chapter and verse been added on to God's words of life. They were originally shared in a community like this. Somebody would get up and literally proclaim the words of life, offer them and share them. They weren't broken down by chapter and verse. A guy named George Powell reminds us of this, and he says there's a power that can be lost when we put all the chapters and verses in. Now, it can be helpful to locate something in Scripture quickly, but there's a really big difference between for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And, hey, go to chapter 3, verse 16 of John. There's a really big difference between, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And go to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. And there's a really big difference between, um, the Lord is my, our shepherd, and we shall not want. And go to chapter 23, verse 1 of Psalms. Now, don't get me wrong, those, those are helpful. But if we take it too far, we lose the power in the words of life. Because many of us are better at memorizing Scripture than spiritualizing Scripture and receiving that. And so part of what we're trying to capture here this morning is this idea of understanding, again, what it means to experience the good life by not analyzing Jesus to death. Even early Christians, it's hard for us to remember this, early Christians did not focus on the religion of Christianity. That is not what they focused on and chose to be known about. For example, this might sound surprising to us, but I want us to understand this and realize this here this morning. Early followers of Jesus did not think of themselves primarily as Christians. They didn't. That was not their primary focus. Instead, they thought of themselves as disciples. If you don't believe me sometime, look in the New Testament. The term disciple is used 269 times. The term Christian is used three times. Yes, they belong to this religion of Christianity, but that wasn't their focus because religions lead to statements. Faith leads to living disciples. 
and discipleship. And the two are vastly different. I love this description of a disciple given by Dallas Willard. He says, a disciple is an apprentice of Jesus in kingdom living. Man, there's so much I love about that. An apprentice is somebody who is living and modeling their master. But notice it says, of Jesus in kingdom living experiencing, not just learning about from a distance, but you are experiencing it up close and personal, which is good and which is beautiful and which is true, and experiencing that firsthand. That's what disciples of Jesus are called to do. So keeping all of that in mind and what we've been talking about and how we can embrace the words found in Scripture, I'm going to invite us in just a moment to look at words of Scripture found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. But when I read these words in just a minute, I'm not going to give you the verses for it. I'm just going to read the scripture as is and invite you to hear those words without the breaking up of different verses and as I get ready to do that here's the background of Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 it's in scripture called something a Christological hymn and it's written by Paul we've heard of Paul before he wrote many books in the New Testament here's what I love about this particular section of scripture though the primary theme is joy but it's joy that Paul is writing about while he's sitting in prison. Think about that. The primary theme is joy, and yet life is not good. Life is not easy for Paul as he gets ready to write the, or as he does write these words. So I don't know what it is for you right now that's pressing upon you, what adversity you're facing, what difficulty you're facing. But imagine that and magnify it. And what does it mean to live into joy even through that? That's what Paul's doing here this morning. And what's even kind of cooler to me is he doesn't just write it out like in regular narrative prose form. He uses a different form of language. And they call it a Christological hymn because there's a form of poetry that Paul is using. And it's a different kind of poetry. It's not even a regular Greek poetry, which is almost like Paul's way of saying, I'm even going to write this differently. Like these words, they're not just words by themselves to describe something. These words convey something beyond themselves. They convey a beauty and a truth and a wonder that you don't just find anywhere. So in this poetic, beautiful spirit, this true and good spirit, hear these words this morning from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And again, just hear the words. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value other people above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing, nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death, all the way to the cross. So therefore, God exalted him, exalted him to the highest place. 
Gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a blueprint for us of the good life, but it's a blueprint that you and I would never, ever, ever expect on our own. It's not something we would look for on our own. And here are the two points I want us to understand looking at this this morning. First of all, Christ voluntarily gave himself up. And it's exemplified here in this verse, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing. Jesus chose on his own. Remember, where? let's picture what's happening. Jesus in heaven, all of eternity, life is good, status with God. Nobody forced him. He did not have to. He chose to empty himself. He chose to come to earth, serve you and I, emptied himself, finally by being willing to die on the cross for you and I. In that emptying of himself, God then takes him, and we get to the second point exemplified in this verse here this morning, which says this, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. So here's Jesus, has status, comes to earth, he voluntarily empties himself, and then God exalts him because he emptied himself, and God exalts him higher than he was even before this all began. Think about what's happening there. It is a model for the good life, except it's a model we're not often comfortable or familiar with, which is in the emptying comes the exalting. We can think of it this way here this morning. Literally, that's the visual. Here's Jesus. He's existed for eternity, chooses to empty himself, and again, that's almost beyond our comprehension. Like, don't miss that. Because he loved us, he said, I'm leaving the comforts, the confines of heaven for you. I will suffer in ways unimaginable for you. I will give up all good, these good things that I've experienced for you. But then when he does that, what does God do? Exalts him out of the emptiness to a higher place than he's ever been before. That's the model of the good life. And yet, for you and I, we often miss this because what do you and I do? We know this. We do this all the time. I can tell us this a hundred times, and yet this is what we're still going to do as human beings. We have our status, and what do we do? I want to play the role of God. I want others to serve me. I want to be comfortable. I want to be over them somehow. And we believe this lie over and over and over and over and over again. And every single time when we reach to play the role of God or make ourselves better than others or try to make it about us and our comfort, what happens? We end up lower than we were before. We end up isolated, broken, ashamed, humiliated, alone. Remember Adam and Eve? We've talked about them a number of times through this entire series. Life was good with God. There was a harmony with God. They walked with God every single day until they said, you know what? Our status isn't enough, God. We want your status. We reach for your status. We want it to be about us. We want to call the shots. And what happened as a result of them reaching for the status of God to call the shots? It left their relationship with each other broken, their relationship with creation broken, their relationship with God broken. God went looking for them because they were ashamed and embarrassed and humiliated. And we do the same. So church, here it is. If we want to experience the good life, we empty ourselves that God may do the exalting. Now I can say that all I want, but here's the truth. 
for many of us, we hear those words and it's like, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds like a pastory thing to say. That sounds like a churchy thing to say. Like, yeah, like, no, we don't disagree with that. But are we going to live that? Are we going to say, you know what, I'm going to choose to live into this model of the good life by learning to empty myself, by learning to serve others, and letting God through that do whatever exalting God wants to do. Because I doubt too many of us disagree with it in theory. I do wonder, though, how much we are willing to live into it in reality. If we need any convincing, let's think about a couple things here this morning. We've already heard this example from Paul. He's describing literally what Jesus did, which is pretty powerful to ignore. Was in heaven, lowered himself, served us, God exalted him higher than he'd ever been before. We have the example of Christ himself who shows us it's really true. In the emptying comes the exalting. But there's lots of other things to think about here as well. I appreciate this quote from a woman named Ann Murphy. She says, like, how, do we want to exp- how do we experience the glory of God? The glory of God is most fully revealed in the descent of the Son, into his suffering, death, and the passivity of the grave. That is so counter to us. That is so counter to our human nature. That's so counter that everywhere we turn in our culture says, do what makes you happy. You keep reaching, keep reaching, keep reaching. And we oftentimes do. And then we wonder, why isn't this working? Why do I still feel empty? Why do I still feel alone? Why am I not experiencing a good life? Because we're reaching instead of emptying. And I'm reminded of all of that as she shares in that quote. At the same time, when we think about this, Uh, you're familiar with probably these words at some point in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 we hear I want to know Christ and and how are we going to know Christ what does it mean to actually experience Christ we will know the power of his resurrection by participating in his sufferings becoming like him in his death now we can hear that and it's like that's Jesus but here's an example have you ever heard of this woman probably somewhere along the line name was Mother Teresa anyone ever heard of Mother Teresa of course you have somewhere along the line It is fascinating to me, why do we know the name Mother Teresa? Why is her name known around the world? Because she devoted her entire life to emptying herself, serving others in the name of Christ, serving the least, the lost, the broken. That's all she set out to do. She didn't seem to search to accumulate wealth for herself, reaching up. She didn't seek political office, reaching up. She didn't reach out for earthly forms of success, reaching out. What did she do? She emptied herself, and God used that, elevated this platform for her to share literally around the world about the importance of serving the most broken and hurting in our world and society. She's a concrete example that in the emptying comes this exaltation. Last week, I had an opportunity to be with a gentleman named Eric. And I wish he could have been there because Eric, just with tears in his eyes, shared some of his story. And he said, you have to understand, I sat in a church pew for 50 years. And I heard all these stories about Jesus and and what life there was like. And he said, I was a good church member and I was a good member of society. But he said, it took 50 years for me to understand that the way of Christ is a full abandonment of myself, a full surrender of myself. And then with tears in his eyes said, I wish it wouldn't have taken that long. But he said, how do we share that it's in the full abandonment that we find the joy? How do we help everyone in churches to understand that? It's not just come and listen. It's a full surrender and abandonment to Christ. And now God is using Eric in a powerful way 
in the city of Arlington, Texas, and working with pastors in that city to share God's kingdom in a way that it's never been experienced before. What is Eric articulating? In the emptying comes the exaltation. In the surrender comes the joy, and that's the model and mode of the good life. Why are generous people often happy people? Because they're no longer defined by consumerism, which can never fully be satisfied. They have learned to be free to give generously and what God has blessed them with and to experience. What did Jesus himself tell us? He said, literally, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He's not just making that up. This is a reality. This is a way to the good life for us to experience. We just had a few individuals standing up here on stage. Did you hear the covenantal promises they made? We promise to serve someone besides ourselves. We promise to serve Jesus. We promise to serve this particular part of the body of Christ. We didn't twist our arms to say that. They were happy to do so. Why? Because they're starting to understand it's in the emptying that comes the exaltation. It's in the emptying that we find a form of the good life. And maybe at some level, this shouldn't even surprise us that Jesus was willing to do this. I mean, again, divine. Why would he give up and come to earth? Well, remember what Jesus has literally been practicing for eternity to do. What's the existence of the Trinity? We covered this a couple weeks ago. Remember when we poured the pitchers? God the Father pours out into the Son and Holy Spirit. The Son pours himself out for the Holy Spirit and God the Father. The Spirit pours itself out for God the Father and God the Son. And in all of the pouring out, what's happening? A simultaneous filling. In the emptying comes the fulfilling. And so it's almost like for all of eternity, Jesus has even been training for this moment that Paul lays out for us today, that he leaves the confines of heaven, empties himself, comes to earth, dies for us, resurrected again, and God exalts him higher than he ever was before. And this is the model of the good life that Jesus offers to us. Will we live into it? We can talk about it, we can comprehend it. Will we live into it? Three quick ways for us to think about how is it that we would live into this emptying to experience the good life of God's exaltation, whatever that looks like. First of all, an emptying of ourselves in regards to time. Increasingly in our world, it's time we feel like we don't have to give, have to give. We don't have any more margin in our lives. We don't know what that means or how to, I'd love to serve there, but I don't have the time. What would it look like just to take a step back and say, I am going to carve this time out for you, Lord, no matter what, and move in that direction? What would it look like for us to empty ourselves of our resources? Maybe we already give something to God, but what would it look like to be stretched and say, Lord, I do not want to be defined by my consumeristic desires, and so I choose to give even more to you, to empty myself of me and give more generously to you. On the surface, it sounds awful. I can't do that. But it's in the emptying that comes the exaltation. And finally, what does it mean for us to empty ourselves spiritually? To empty our hearts of other distractions and focus on you, Lord. And what a perfect time to ask that question as we get ready to go into the season of Lent. You heard Pastor Daniel talking about Lent. There's going to be a gospel challenge and invitation for us to read through and embrace scripture together. There will be opportunities to celebrate in a whole variety of ways. There'll be the opportunity Monday, Thursday, already be thinking, can you be a host? Can you go to be with someone else? And who can you invite into that? Every morning, Monday through Friday during Lent, we'll meet across the street at 6 a.m. for early morning prayer. Who wants to do that? I know I don't, I'll just admit to you, I'll be there, but I don't like doing that. I like to sleep. And yet, every time I do it, I'm so glad I did. Time, 
resources in your heart? What can you empty to experience this exaltation and the good life that we're talking about this morning? The reality is this. The good life is found not in demanding for ourselves, but in emptying ourselves for others. Just ask Eric or Jesus or Mother Teresa or Paul sharing with us in Philippians here this morning. And we'll find this to be true. The last image I want to leave you with here this morning is this. It's called technically the Rublev Trinity icon. It's kind of a mouthful, but uh, essentially what it is is this. It's a painting, but it's called an icon because every single part of this picture is symbolic. It shares something. It's a message that's being shared with us. It's based on the Genesis 18 story where Abraham and his wife Sarah host three different strangers who we find out are really angels of the Lord. That was the inspiration for this painting, which is used in many circles to define or describe what God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the Trinity is like. So when you look at that table, you'll see, for example, God the Father is more of a gold robe. And this is a little bit hard to see, so if you get a chance, I invite you to Google this yourself sometime. But God the Father is in gold, representing uh, uh, perfection. Uh, Jesus the Son is in blue, reminding us of the color of the skies and the seas. The Holy Spirit there is in the color of green, which reminds us of fertility and of life. So you've got all of these things being symbolized and represented. At the same time, if you look carefully at that picture, notice that all three heads are sort of bowing to the other. They're, they're turned a little bit to the side. They're deferring to each other because that's what happens in the Trinity. There's this mutual, constant submission to each other. They're each holding a staff, reminding us of equality. If you look at Jesus, he's the one in the middle. It's a little bit hard to see. He's holding two fingers out or on the table, reminding us of both his humanity and his divinity. Behind Jesus, then, is a tree, giving us a clue that the wood of the cross would come into play at some point. See, every single part has meaning. Here's what I want to point your attention to. It's a little bit hard to see, but if you can see it, and again, Google it if you can't, under, on the table, underneath what is the cup, so between the two legs there of the individuals, there's a bit of an empty rectangle space. I don't know if you can see that. It's kind of hard to see, but there's an empty rectangle space, and historians have been unsure why would there be on this painting an empty rectangular space, because remember, every single thing means something. Interestingly, historians have found out that that empty rectangle space in it has the residues of glue, you know, when you glue something on to something else. And so they've begun to surmise, they're not 100% sure, but it looks like something was glued on there. And their best guess, or one of their best guesses of what was glued on there, was a mirror. Now, if it was a mirror, what would that mean? If you are the one in front of this icon and you're looking at it and there's God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whose face now suddenly appears at the table with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Your face, my face, whoever's looking. Which to me is such a wonderful reminder that God invites us into the good life with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to experience the fullness of God's goodness and God's beauty and God's truth. And just like Jesus perhaps had been training for eternity to come and empty himself that he might be exalted, 
We trust that God is training us as disciples of Jesus to help us to learn to not just talk about, but actually empty ourselves that we might be exalted in God's kingdom, whatever that may look like. And remember, the exaltation may not be our form of exaltation, but God's form of exaltation. I invite you this week, whenever you look into a mirror, maybe that can be a reminder of joining with God and his goodness and grace and truth. So maybe when you get up in the morning and you're brushing your teeth and you look in the mirror, or in your car and you look in your rearview mirror or your side mirror, anytime you look in a mirror, may it be a reminder of joining with God. Maybe we'll do it again by giving up some of our time or emptying ourselves of some of our resources or some of the obstacles in our heart. And when we do that, we know and we trust God will lead to the filling and the exalting. And church, if we do that, I assure you, it will be very, very good. Amen.